Okay, welcome to day 338 of Journey Through Scripture. Today we'll be in Daniel 11, verses 1 through 35, Psalm 138, and 1 John 4, 7 through 21. Okay, so notice that Daniel 11 begins in the first person, as for me. And who is the me? It's actually not Daniel. It is the the one who is called in chapter 10, verse 18, the one having the appearance of a man. And I noted there that it's a little bit ambiguous how many angelic beings are in that passage. Uh, this may be Gabriel, but I don't know if we can know that for certain. But he says, in the first year of Darius the Mede, I stood up to confirm and strengthen him. Now, if there's a candidate for an opening verse of a reading that be- probably belongs in the in yesterday's and the previous day's um, uh, reading, I think it might be this one, because it very much does seem to be capping off what was said in chapter 10, right? Uh, the hymn is either Darius the Mede, whom we have identified as Cyrus, um, or uh, it could be Michael, who is uh, the uh, angelic being um, given to preside over Israel, as we learn at the end of chapter 10. Um but so you could take it either of those ways, um, confirm and strengthen him if it is if it is Darius to support his kingship, uh, perhaps uh, indicating that um, uh, that the the individual speaking here, perhaps Gabriel, is uh, confirming the uh, transition from Babylonian power over Babylon to Persian power over Babylon. And then what ensues for the rest of today's reading is a passage of Scripture that is very interesting. Um, It is clearly predictive prophecy, which, as we've seen, is far from the only way in which prophecy works. Um, But this, I think, kind of gets pride of place uh, for the most specific kind of blow-by-blow type uh, predictive prophecy that you really have in the Bible. Like, it's not just God saying, like, one thing's going to happen, but it's event after event after event and after event. And it's actually a strikingly accurate um, telling of the future history of uh, essentially the, what will become of Alexander the Great's empire, eventually leading to the uh, persecution of the Jews, at least as that history relates to the part of Alexander's empire that was given to Ptolemy and the other that ended up in the hands of the Seleucid kings. And again, I have to underscore, this is a unique form of predictive prophecy in that it is so detailed, you know, obviously not telling everything that happens, but just event after event after event. And um, we should probably note that as I've gestured before, the dating of Daniel is a uh, the book of Daniel is a controversial matter. Some would say that uh, it's it was written essentially in the days of Daniel. Uh, my personal position with a lot of this stuff is that the places where it is recorded, where the Bible does say like so and so wrote this or so and so recorded this, like that that material actually does originate with the individual that the Bible um, uh, attributes it to. Uh, with the possibility for later editing and things, but there are some who would just strictly place it, including a lot of this narration, this first person speaking, um, to a much later date, that it's basically uh, prophecy ex eventu, prophecy after the event. So in other words, it's portraying itself as predictive prophecy, but it's actually 
uh, written in hindsight. It's, it's written as history. And a big part of that is that if you are skeptical about the validity of predictive prophecy, then yeah, you're going to say that, especially for a passage like this that is so specific and so accurate. Um, but I think it's important to acknowledge that uh, that that kind of skepticism towards an earlier date for Daniel is does not hang solely on a skepticism towards predictive prophecy. Uh, it is that, but it is combined with the idea that when Daniel speaks of this later history, okay, so like what happens in the 300s down to the time of the Maccabees, down to the time of the Jewish rebellion under Antiochus IV, it is exceedingly accurate. Whereas when it tells of Persian history, it's less accurate, allegedly less accurate. And there the primary example would be the issue that we've discussed with Darius the Mede, right? So it would make sense for a Jewish writer writing around like, you know, the uh, maybe the early part of the 2nd century, like the 160s, 170s, it would make sense for a person from that time era to understand the more recent history, right, but get the more distant history wrong. So it's those things kind of combined with one another. Now, I've already said that I'm not particularly disturbed by the issues with the character of Darius the Mede. Um, and uh, I, I don't see that as a problem. I think uh, Wiseman's proposal, as we discussed in chapter five, um, is satisfying to me. Um, and so I'm able to say that I believe that um, you know the the narration that 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 Daniel contains accurate narration of what Daniel wrote, what was said, what is said here in these revelations to him, and that possibly a later generation, uh, kind of stitched it together and edited it together. After all, we don't have like a copyright date on the book or something. And that's kind of where I land with that. Okay, so we're going to go through this and it's going to be very much blow by blow. And I'll do my best to explain as the passage unfolds the history that is it is denoting. And again, this is being portrayed as speech to Daniel about what is to come. So let's pick up in verse two. And now I will show you the truth. Behold, three more kings shall arise in Persia, and a fourth shall be richer than all of them. And when he has become strong through his riches, he shall stir up all against the kingdom of Greece. So the succession of rulers after Cyrus the Great in Persia is Cambyses, and then a guy who is known um, uh, in two ways as Bardia or as Smyrdis, who is actually the son of Cyrus, who was actually killed pretty early on, and an imposter named Guatemata uh, ruled in his stead. That's actually, a if you want to look up a fa uh, an interesting story, look up Bardia, B-A-R-D-I-Y-A. -A. Okay, so you got Cambyses, one, uh, Bardia, two. Then you've got Darius the first uh, as the, the third ruler, and then Xerxes the first, whom the Bible calls Ahasuerus or Ahasuerus. Um, and that fourth one is indeed famously wealthy, and um, and he is the one who um, uh, campaigns against the kingdoms of the Greeks and is uh, victorious over them at the famous Battle of Thermopylae. This is, we are Spartans, um, and um, he is victorious, and subsequent to that, he burns Athens and ends up controlling mainland Greece. Okay, 
So then after these four rulers, a mighty king shall arise, okay, Alexander the Great, who shall rule with great dominion and do as he wills. And as soon as he has arisen, his kingdom shall be broken and divided to, to the four winds of heaven. We've noted this already, right? Alexander the Great dies in like his low 30s. And um, it's suspected that he was poisoned. It's agony over uh, over many days, um, but nobody, I, I think, knows for sure. But I know a lot of people think he was poisoned. Um, so his kingdom is divided four ways, but not to his posterity, okay? His sons are murdered after his death, uh, nor according to the authority for with which he ruled, for his kingdom shall be plucked up and go to others besides these. And we've talked about how this is, the kingdom is then divided among four of his generals. And the the kingdoms that go to two of them are going to be the focus of the rest of these passages, of the rest of this passage. Then the king of the south shall be strong, but one of his princes shall be stronger than he and shall rule, and his authority shall be a great authority. So this king of the south, this is going to speak of the part of Alexander's empire, which is Egypt. And that is given to a guy whose name is Ptolemy the first. Okay, again, that's PT, uh, as in pterodactyl. Um, uh, and he has the charming title Soter, which means savior. Um, but uh, remember, this is a Hellenistic, uh, hell, these are Hellenistic kingdoms. And the nice thing about the Ptolemaic dynasty in Egypt is that they're all called Ptolemy. So you don't have to remember random switching forth between names. You're just like first, second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, and we'll go down to the seventh today. Um, one of his princes uh, is is going to be stronger than he. Now, this is... Um, uh, when when the kingdom is divided, it's not so e so so simple that they're just like, all right, who wants what, right? Like it takes a while for that to set in place. And initially, a guy named Seleucus, who is Seleucid the first, the father of the Seleucid dynasty, um, is a commander under Ptolemy because he cannot yet consolidate power in Syria and Mesopotamia, and um, and he who is originally a commander in, in Ptolemy's army, uh, becomes the ruler of the territory, you know, up there, Syria, Mesopotamia, basically north of Israel, of course, right? Um, and that becomes the largest territory in the Hellenistic world. I noted the other day, it stretches all the way east towards India. Um, after some years, verse 6, they shall make an alliance. So, the Ptolemies and the, Seleuc the Seleucids are initially adversaries. Okay, uh, despite Seleucus um, serving under Ptolemy, they're not friendly with one another. Um, but when Ptolemy the first dies and the kingdom passes to his son Ptolemy the second, um, he establishes peace with Seleucus' grandson Antiochus the second, who also has a charming title, Theos, God. Um, it's kind of on the nose there. Um, so this Ptolemy II, the, the ruler of Egypt at this time, by the way, he is the one under whom tradition says that the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, was commissioned. But So these guys have peace. Uh, Seleucus' grandson, Antiochus II, and the ruler of Egypt, Ptolemy II. Okay? And then, uh, continuing on in verse 6, "...and the daughter of the king of the south shall come to the king of the north to make an agreement." So this peace that exists between the Ptolemies and the Seleucus is established 
um, uh, by a marriage alliance with, uh, with Ptolemy II's daughter, Berenike, or let's just call her Berenice, um, being given in marriage to uh, Antiochus. Um, and then it says, but she shall not retain the strength of her arm, and he and his arm shall not endure, but she shall be given up, and her attendants, he who fathered her, and he who supported her in those times. So Antiochus married to Berenike, Berenice, and um, uh, both of them are going to be in trouble. So in order to make that alliance between the Seleucids and the Ptolemies, Antiochus divorced his first wife, whose name is Laodike, um, and and that and he already had a son with this woman. Uh, that son is Seleucus II. Uh, by the way, Laodike, this first wife of Antiochus II, it, uh, Laodicea is named after her. So he divorces her and then marries Berenice. And then a couple years later, Antiochus dies, and Laodike, his ex-wife, who was given a, a good portion of land, um, was accused of having poisoned him, knowing that the children born to Antiochus II and Berenice would be heirs to the empire, right? And as I said, Laodike already has a son, and she has that son, Seleucus II, proclaimed king, and her supporters then murder Berenice and her child. And then, so that's how Seleucus II takes the throne. And then verse 7, and from a, from a branch from her roots, one shall arise in his place. So the his here probably refers to the king of the south, Ptolemy II. This branch is his son, Ptolemy III, who attempted to march north to support his sister Bernice, right? So Bernice, Berenice is the, uh, is the woman who's in danger from Laodike, right? And uh, and and as I said, Laodike eventually um, ends up, her supporters end up murdering Berenice. So he receives word that all this is going down, and that's his sister. Ber Berenice is, is his sister. And so having received news of Antiochus II's death, he senses the danger, and when he arrives, he finds her and her son, who is his nephew, killed. And so in response, the Ptolemies go to war against the Seleucids, and this is known as the Third Syrian War, which lasts from 246 to 241. So continuing in verse 7, he shall come against the army and enter the fortress of the king of the north, and he shall deal with them and shall prevail. He shall also carry off to Egypt their gods with their metal images and their precious vessels of silver and gold. So, Again, the, the Ptolemy we're at now is uh, Ptolemy III, right? He's the, 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 the branch from her roots, um, uh, Berenice's sister. And so Ptolemy III wages this war against the Seleucids. All right, you want to kill my sister and her son? You're going to have it. And that's the Third Syrian War, right? And by the end, he is victorious. It, lay, it basically lays waste to the Seleucid Empire. And... Um, Ptolemy captures and kills Laodike, and among the spoil that he recovers is a number of are a number of sacred statues of his Egyptian deities. You can call them idols, 
um, which were captured by Cambyses nearly 300 years earlier. And so he's widely celebrated in Egypt for this. And then verse 8 goes on, and for some years he shall refrain from attacking the king of the north. So eventually a peace treaty is established between Ptolemy III and Seleucus II, the, the son of Laodike, who is now still reigning on the throne, although he's had his uh, tail whipped by Ptolemy. Then in verse 9, then the latter shall come into the realm of the king of the south, but shall return to his own land. Now, this uh, is apparently describing an, other, an otherwise historically unknown attempt of Seleucus II to move against Egypt, um, or it may be that simply that he came to Egypt in order to establish that treaty. All right, then uh, at verse 10, we the following verses, these verses now will describe how Antiochus III assumes control of the entire Levant, which the Levant is basically Phoenicia and then south all the way through Judah. So in verse 10, his, that is Antiochus II's, sons, shall wage war and assemble a multitude of great forces, which shall keep coming and overflow and pass through and again carry the war as far as his fortress. So, Seleucus II is succeeded by two sons. The first is Seleucus III, who reigns briefly from 225 to 223, and the second is Antiochus III, who reigns from 223 to 187 BC. Uh, both sons resumed fighting against the Ptolemies of Egypt and are much more successful than their predecessor father, Antiochus II, was. So Antiochus III, that is the, the second of Antiochus II's son, campaigns in the Levant as far as Ptolemy's fortress. Because remember, the Levant is under Ptolemaic control right now. And, um, and so he campaigns as far as Ptolemy's fortress, which is probably Gaza. And uh, by this time, the Ptolemaic king in power, by the way, is Ptolemy IV. Okay? Um, and then in verse 11, then the king of the south, moved with rage, so Ptolemy IV does not like this, shall come out and fight against the king of the north. And he shall raise a great multitude, but it shall be given into his hand. And when the multitude is taken away, his heart shall be exalted, and he shall cast down tens of thousands. Okay, and then we'll break the verse there. So, after an enormous battle, okay, so this is Ptolemy's versus the Seleucids, basically over the Levant. And this, uh, the according to Polybius, there are 175 elephants involved if, uh, between the two sides. Um after this battle, Ptolemy IV is victorious, so the Egyptians win this one, but it shall be given into his hand, therefore should be translated, and it shall be given into his hand. But then, verse 12 ends, but he shall not prevail. And verse 13, for the king of the north shall again raise a multitude greater than the first. And after some years, he shall come on with a great army and abundant supplies. So, 15 years later, in 203 BC, Ptolemy IV, the one who is victorious in that battle with all the elephants, um, <laughs> dies when his palace catches on fire, and his five-year-old son, Ptolemy V, is his surviving heir. So if you're the Seleucid ruler, right, if you're Antiochus III, you see that and you're like, here's my chance, let me raise an army, 
and once again attempt to take the Levant. Okay, verse 14. In those times, many shall rise against the king of the south, and the violent among your own people shall lift themselves up in order to fulfill the vision, but they shall fail. So, um, you know, uh, seeing what's going on, there are Jewish people who see the Seleucids as, you know, potential deliverers. And so they attempt to rebel against the uh, Egyptian Ptolemies, but are subdued by the more powerful Egyptian forces. Then in verse 15, Then the king of the north shall come and throw up siege works and take a well-fortified city, and the forces of the south shall not stand, or even his best troops, for there shall be no strength to stand. And I, I think this probably refers to Antiochus III's forces' siege on the Egyptians at Sidon. Eventually, the, the, the general in charge has to hole up there after being defeated uh, elsewhere in the Levant. Then verse 16, But he who comes against him shall do as he wills, and none shall stand before him. And he shall stand in the glorious land, which is obviously Israel, with destruction in his hand. Okay, so by 198, the Levant is now firmly under Seleucid control, and as I said, the Seleucids are welcomed at Jerusalem as deliverers. Okay, verse 17, he shall set his face to come with the strength of his whole kingdom, and he shall bring terms of an agreement and perform them. He shall give him the daughter of women to destroy the kingdom, but it shall not stand or be to his advantage. So, Having established peace once again with the Ptolemies of Egypt, Antiochus, again, this is Antiochus III, uh, gives his daughter Cleopatra, first of her name, not that Cleopatra, um, in marriage to Ptolemy V. Remember the one who had been made king when he was five. Oh, that, that works. Ptolemy V, king at five. Look at that. I didn't even realize that. Okay. <laughs> so Ptolemy V is coronated as king. So he's not king uh, really, when he's when he's five, instead, there, Egypt is governed uh, uh, during the war by regents. When he's thirteen, he's coronated as king. And interestingly, one of the stelae that is inscribed in his honor is the famous Rosetta Stone. And uh, so Antiochus hopes that he forms this marriage alliance with Egypt. Uh, you know, which is generally done to secure peace, hoping uh, secretly that Cleopatra, his daughter, would, um, that her influence would give him control over Egypt and that he can control it through her. But actually, she falls in love with Ptolemy V and supports him. Okay, then in verse 18, "...afterward he shall turn his face to the coastlands and shall capture many of them, but a commander shall put an end to his insolent." To his insolence. Indeed, he shall turn his insolence back upon him. Then he shall turn his face back toward the fortresses of his own land, but he shall stumble and fall and shall not be found. So Antiochus III is, uh, turns his attention westward, um, essentially like towards what we typically think of as like Greece and Macedonia, but are repelled at Thermopylae by the Romans. And uh, the Romans pursue Antiochus's army into the Seleucid homeland and defeat them at the Battle of Magnesia. Two years later, the Romans force Antiochus III to sign a treaty, which includes paying them an annual large sum of money, um, a tribute, 
surrender of territory, surrender of troops, and 20 hostages, including his heir, Antiochus IV. And that's the guy that, you know, the little horn guy. Uh, requiring funds to pay the Romans, Antiochus is killed by the angry citizenry of Elumais, which is Alam, uh, when he attempts to plunder the Temple of Baal, which is the, their, what they're calling Zeus at this time, which is located there. So he's killed that way. So it's a very in- inglorious end to this uh, otherwise pretty powerful king's reign. Then in verse 20, then shall arise in his place one who shall send an exactor of tribute for the glory of the kingdom. So Antiochus III's son, Seleucus IV, is still required to pay an annual tribute to Rome, and he continues to do this by resorting to pillaging temples, including attempting to do it to the one in Jerusalem. But then continuing verse 20, but within a few days he shall be broken, neither in anger nor in battle. So this Seleucus, Seleucus IV, is poisoned by his chancellor, who attempts to seize control of the kingdom himself. Then we come to the reign of Antiochus IV, Epiphanes, again, the little horn of chapters 7 and 8. Verse 21, in his place shall arise a contemptible person to whom royal majesty has not been given. He shall come in without warning and obtain the kingdom by flatteries. So, Antiochus IV is the son of Antiochus III, and his brother is the guy who was just poisoned, Seleucus IV. This means that Seleucus's son, Demetrius I, was actually the rightful heir. However, Antiochus IV, who had initially been one of those 20 hostages taken by the Romans to secure his father's good behavior, had been brought home with Demetrius, who is the heir, going to live as hostage in his place. So um, re- so Antiochus IV then comes to the capital city from Athens, where he had been living, and seizes the throne, a- accepting a co-regency with one of Seleucus's other sons, who is an infant. This child, who's also named Antiochus, is killed when he's five, possibly by Antiochus IV himself. Okay, so that's how he gets, he comes to the throne. Then in verse 22, armies shall be utterly swept away before him and broken, even the prince of the covenant. And from the time that an alliance is made with him, he shall act deceitfully, and he shall become strong with a small people. So Antiochus IV agrees to help Ptolemy VI dislodge his brother. So back to Egypt now, right? Uh, Ptolemy VII is reigning on the throne of Egypt, and Ptolemy VI wants it. So he enlists Antiochus IV's help, but but he does so, but of course Antiochus is only interested in controlling Egypt through Ptolemy VI. Um, verse 24, without warning, he shall come into the richest parts of the province and he shall do what neither his fathers nor his father's fathers have done, scattering among them plunder, spoil, and goods. He shall devise plans against strongholds, but only for a time. So Antiochus IV, um, one of the things he was known for throughout his kingdom is taking spoils during battles and even taxes collected from elsewhere in, uh, and giving them away um, as gifts in the provinces that are under him. And then verse 25, 
and he shall stir up his power and his heart against the king of the south with a great army, and the king of the south shall wage war with an exceedingly great army, but he shall not stand, for plots shall be devised against him. Even those who eat his food shall break him. His army shall be swept away, and many shall fall down slain. And as for the two kings, their hearts shall be bent on doing evil. They shall speak lies at the same table, but to no avail, for the end is yet to be at the appointed time, and he shall return to his land with great wealth. And I'll break off uh, that verse there. So essentially, Antiochus ends up conquering Pelusium in Egypt, which gives him control of virtually all of Egypt, um, allowing him to succeed in his plans with Ptolemy VI, essentially setting up Ptolemy VI as a puppet ruler in Egypt. And then the text continues, But his heart shall be set against the holy covenant, and he shall work his will and return to his own land. So here in these passages, holy covenant refers to God's covenant with the Jewish people. So returning from this first conquest of Egypt, he finds Judah in rebellion because apparently they had heard reports that Antiochus had been killed. And uh, these events now are going to be covered in the book of Maccabees, the books of Maccabees. Um, so in his first act of aggression against the Jews, he puts down that rebellion, killing 40,000 people and selling, se selling another 40,000 into slavery, all Jews. And then he loots the temple. And then we come to verse 29. At, that, at the time appointed, he shall return and come into the south, but it shall not be this time as it was before, for ships of Katim shall come against him, and he shall be afraid and withdraw, and shall turn back and be enraged and take action against the Holy Covenant. Okay, Antiochus IV embarks on a second military expedition against Egypt, this time setting his sights on Alexandria, which is where Ptolemy VII is reigning. Because remember, his brother Ptolemy VI has dislodged him with the help of Antiochus. But Antiochus, en route to Alexandria, is halted by a single Roman envoy who draws a line in the sand, and he threatens that if Antiochus crosses that line, the Senate the Roman Senate would consider him to be at war with Rome, and uh, this is enough to dissuade Antiochus. Um, the ships of Katim, which are, is Cyprus, mentioned here, refer to the Roman ships that are sent uh, to Alexandria to protect it. And on his way back north, he makes a stop at, in Jerusalem on the Sabbath, once again uh, massacring the inhabitants. And then the rest of verse 30 reads, he shall turn back and pay attention to those who forsake the Holy Covenant. So he rewards those Jews who acquiesces, who acquiesce to his policies and kind of cave under that pressure. And then verse 31, forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and the fortress and shall take away the regular burnt offering and they shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. So I'm just going to read here a section from the book of 1 Maccabees, chapter 1, verses 44 through 50. Uh, it says, For the king had sent letters by messengers unto Jerusalem and the cities of Judah, that they should follow the strange laws of the land, that is the king, Antiochus, right? And forbid burnt offerings and sacrifice and drink offerings in the temple, and that they should profane the Sabbaths and festival days and pollute the sanctuary of the holy people. 
set up altars and groves and chapels of idols and sacrifice swine's flesh and unclean beasts, that they should also leave their children uncircumcised and make their souls abominable with all manner of uncleanness and profanation, to the end that they might forget the law and change all the ordinances, and whosoever would not do according to the commandment of the king, he said, he should die. And so, on the, uh, the 15th of the month of Kislev, 167, Antiochus sets up the abomination that makes desolate, which of course is quoted, um, uh, you know, that, that imagery is used by Jesus in Matthew 24, 15, uh, Mark 13, 14 as well, um, to describe what uh, will come upon the temple in his day. And, but what is meant here by this is it, it is a statue or perhaps an altar to the Olympian Zeus in the, in the temple accompanied by sacrifices of pigs. And then finally today, starting in verse 32, he shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant, but the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action, and the wise among the people shall make many understand though for some days they shall stumble by sword and flame, by captivity and plunder. When they stumble, they shall receive a little help, and many shall join themselves to them with flattery, and some of the wise shall stumble, so that they may be refined, purified, and made white until the time of the end, for it still awaits the appointed time. So during this dark time, a Jewish resistance was formed under a faithful priest named Mattathias and his five sons, who become known as the Maccabees, which is basically after the nickname given to his third son, Judas, um, uh, Maccabeus being uh, deriving from the Hebrew or perhaps the Aramaic word for hammer, so Judas the hammer. In a series of hard-fought military victories against Antiochus IV's commanders, the rebellion actually succeeds, and the Feast of Hanukkah was est- is established to commemorate the rededication of the temple on the 25th of Kislev, 164 BC. Okay, <clears throat> I know that was a lot, but it's a very detailed passage. I'm not sure how else to explain it. Let's go to Psalm 138. Okay, it begins, I give you thanks, O Yahweh, with my whole heart, before the gods I sing your praise. Now, gods here is the standard term, Hebrew term Elohim. Um, here, notice it is plural. When it refers to Yahweh, it is, it is, it is singular. It's kind of like a frozen form. Uh, but here we might ask, uh, is this the divine counsel, perhaps, that we've seen in passages like Psalm 82, 6? Um, uh, you know, the, we, we've seen this word can be used for spiritual beings who are less than God, but actually, I think it's more probable that this is referring to uh, the giving of thanks uh, before the gods of the nations, right? Like we're in exile and they're all, we're surrounded by their gods, and so we we praise you. So think, for example, of like yesterday, Psalm one thirty seven, right? Like we're in that context where by the rivers of Babylon uh, we're sitting there weeping. So uh, in the midst of their gods, I sing your praise which is an interesting kind of turn from the tone of yesterday, where it's like, well, how can I sing praise? You know, they're, they're, my captives are saying, sing us a song of Zion. 
and we're hanging up our lyres and our tongues are sticking to the roof of our mouths. But it does end there like, if I forget you, Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill, right? So it does end with like, I will be able to sing. Of course, it ends up singing this the, this crazy imprecation against uh, the people of Babylon. But, you know, I do think that this is in a similar uh, context. So I bow down toward your holy temple. And again, remember Daniel's practice of bowing down three times a day towards Jerusalem, uh, Daniel 6.10. Um, and again, and this is in accordance, This that itself is in accordance with 2 Chronicles 6, 36 through 40, where my people, you know, if they sin and there's no one on earth who does not sin, uh, sorry, my autistic daughter Katie is eating ice cream in the background and tapping her fork on the bowl. She only eats it with a fork. Um, but, you know, if, if my people who are cast into the land of their captivity for their sin um, uh, turn and pray to this house, then hear from this house and forgive them, right? So I bow down towards your holy temple and give thanks to your name for your steadfast love and faithfulness, for you've exalted, uh, for, for you have exalted above all things your name and your word. Okay, notice both of those are together here, exalted, kind of puts a lie to those who criticize uh, people who have too high of a regard for the Bible as biblicists, right, as as worshiping the Bible rather than worshiping God. No, both his name and his word he has exalted, and it is right to have high regard for both. Um, then we get what I call sometimes the missionary uh, dimension of the Old Testament. All the kings of the earth shall give you thanks, O Yahweh. Notice this expression of future hope. For they have heard the words of your mouth— and they shall sing the ways of Yahweh. The, the kings of the earth will. For great is the glory of Yahweh. For though Yahweh is high, he regards the lowly, but the haughty he knows from afar. Right? God is high, and those who exalt themselves, he only knows them from afar. Um, but he regards highly the lowly. Though I walk in the midst of trouble, you preserve my life. You stretch out your hand against the wrath of my enemies, and your right hand delivers me. Yahweh will fulfill his purposes for me. Your steadfast love, O Yahweh, endures forever. Do not forsake the work of your hands. Notice that. Your steadfast love, O Yahweh, endures forever. Most recently, we saw this in Psalm 136, which is structured pretty much entirely around that, right, as this, this repeated refrain. And... um. And I've noted several times that that expression, uh, the steadfast love of Yahweh endures forever, is a characteristically post-exilic expression. So again, um, giving credence to the idea of what it means to sing God's praise um, in the midst or before the gods of the nations. All right, finally, let's go to 1 John 4, 7 through 21. Very centered today around what we looked at yesterday. Remember what we said were the two sides of the same coin, uh, believing or confessing Jesus and loving one another, okay? there You cannot have one without the other. So, beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. All right, the, the language conceptually is very similar here to chapter 4, verse 2, which said that every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And there I noted 
that this doesn't mean that like every single person that believes Jesus of Nazareth was a historical figure is from God, but rather it's the one who like confesses that, right? Like that's that's your confession. Um, and that that's a necessary part of your confession, right? Like you wouldn't say of, of, of some historian who just you know writes on Jesus of Nazareth from a skeptical standpoint, yet believes he's a true he's a true historical figure. You wouldn't say he confesses Jesus Christ come in the flesh. No, that that expression is is uh, is an expression of allegiance, right? To confess Jesus. Um, but uh, notice here the idea also. Whoever loves God has been born of God. We talked yesterday about that organic relationship, like being born of God means you are somewhat like God, just like if you're born, the the parents whom you're born of, you resemble them in certain ways. So with those who are born of God, who have love, have righteousness, and we see that concept, that that um, genetic connection between God and the children of God expressed in chapter 2, verse 29, chapter 3, verse 2, and especially in chapter 3, verses 9 through 10. And then we find this idea being expressed in various ways. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. Again, the genetic connection. We are united to Jesus by faith, by trust, by receiving him, and by that we become children of God, but because we are true children of God, and that's those aren't just words on a page, we become like the one whose children we are. And then, in a similar way to John 3.16, where how does God love us, right? Do, what can I look to in my life? Is my bank account, my health, my family, my friends? Um, what can I look to to see, you know, God loves me? Well, here it is. In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. And uh, then verse 10, in this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. There we have it again. We saw that John used this phrase, this, this, this word propitiation to describe the significance of Jesus's death in chapter 2, verse 2, right? He's the propitiation not just for our sins, but for the sins of the whole world. And as I've said numerous times, propitiation is uh, uh, roughly the same word uh, that is used to describe the covering of the Ark of the Covenant. They're um, expressing the idea, this is the place that atonement is made. Jesus is the place where atonement is made. And I love how this verse combines that with love, right? How do we know that God loves us? Because he did that, because he made Jesus the propitiation for our sin. And so the conclusion of the paragraph, beloved, if God so loved us, if God loved us in this way, we ought also to love one another. Okay, you see how our love for one another is motivated by God's example for, of love for us. It's not because other people are so awesome. No, it's because you are so loved by God. And in, in this way, and to this extent, no one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. So you haven't seen God, but you have seen one another. And this is very much tied to what is said in verse 20, right? Where he says, um, he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. Like, let's start with the basics first. Okay, then in verse 13, by this we know that we abide in him and he in us. Now, this is cool, right? Because what do we hear 
all the time. Like Jesus says, abide in me, abide in me, abide in me. And uh, chap- uh, chapter 2, verse 8, right, the, put, puts the focus on abiding in him. You need to abide in him. And everybody, you know, seeking security, like, how do I know that I'm saved kind of question. How do I know that I'm truly abiding in Jesus? How do you know that? Well, he's going to tell us. So first of all, that is possible because he has given us of his spirit. So remember I say that that the critical bridge between free salvation in Christ and a love a life of love and righteousness is the spirit of God. That's why the that 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 lo- life of love and righteousness is assured for us and that's why we can speak in such certain terms that those who are truly saved, who truly do know the Lord, will live righteous lives, okay? So he's given us his spirit. Um, And we have seen and testified that the Father sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. So now here, now we have the first ingredient of of abiding in him, what you can look at in your life. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God— God abides in him, and he in God. And remember what I said a minute ago about chapter 4, verse 2, the confession that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. Here we have the same idea, confesses that Jesus is the Son of God. Like, that it is a, this, this is a word that has to do with allegiance, right? It's not just simply, it is your confession. This is what you live by your life by, that Jesus is the Son of God. God abides in him, and he in God. So we've come to know and believe the love that God has for us. Uh, God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God. So there's your second marker. So confession, number one, as a response to God's love, right, we have come to know and believe that the love of God, the love that God has for us through Jesus, through his propitiation. And then secondly, um, whoever abides in love abides in God. So you want to know whether you're abiding and whether you actually abide in Jesus. Do you confess that Jesus is the Son of God, you know, and, and all that that involves, that God raised him on the third day, that he died for your sins? And number two, uh, do you love? Do you abide in love? And, and speaking of this idea of being secure in your salvation, right, just to give, let us know that we, that is the page that we are on here, notice what he says um, in the very next verse, in verse 17, by this love, by this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in this world, okay? So, uh, because you resemble God, because you confess Jesus, and because you love one another, right? And that is what gives you confidence that you are remaining in him, confidence you are abiding in him, confidence on the day of judgment. Um, the, and, and that informs this verse, right, which is kind of a, a bit of a famous verse. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. Um, and there we could kind of think of that as, as you know, uh, in the wrong way, I think, because notice here that in the context, he's talking about fear of judgment, fear of God. Um, you don't have to fear him. If indeed you fear him, take him seriously and embrace Jesus as your Lord and your Savior, okay? Uh, perfect love casts out fear. So the more you love, the less fear you have to have of God. Um, for fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. So if you are afraid of God's punishment, 
what you should do, the antidote to that, okay, is you should love more. Um, we love because he first loved us. Again, our love in response to his love. So it really is like somebody who truly understands the gospel in whom this is perfected. Of course, who has the Spirit as well, as verse 13 indicated. Now notice what John also exposes here as nonsense. If anyone says, I love God, and yet hates his brother, okay? If, here's, here's the deal, John says. If you hate your brother, I don't care what you say, you don't love God. You're a liar, okay? Because whoever does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. Again, those things are hand in hand. So when we speak about, like, how do you know you're abiding? Well, are you abiding in love? Um, and you're like, well, love towards whom? Love towards God and love towards one another. Um, they both go hand in hand. And this is the commandment that we have from him. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. All right, that's it for today. As always, I thank you for being with me. And as always, I look forward to being with you tomorrow. And until then, keep reading scripture, take care, and bye-bye.